funny because in this one way, you and I are probably exact opposites, Chris. Yeah. In terms of your like rise and grind, productivity, always working on a project, always doing something, never taking a rest. I'm the opposite of that. Like I minimize uh, my obligations. I have no problem saying like, oh, well, today's a fuck off day. I'm not doing anything. And it's to my detriment, really, because like it's a, I do it too often and too easily. So, well, it's also to my detriment. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm not. We sn- need a happy uh, medium. Yeah. I'm medium. Not, uh, uh, sniffing the flowers. I'm not uh, taking the time to read the entire article before I repost it. Uh, just read the headline, you know, and click post. You gotta read the article, um, man. You Twitter know, tells you to now. And this is this is the dialectic. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah David, I, are you I, the synthesis? I am the synthesis. I, I, yeah. uh, um, I've been taking weekends. You have, and I'm part. really proud of you for that. Yeah, I've been mostly taking weekends. Uh, and if I could start working a little bit earlier, I could probably actually do something resembling a nine to five but i just i'm not a morning person just constitutionally yeah you you really are i don't work in the morning i don't like it i used to be a morning person until i quit smoking in Mm. fact quitting smoking well it's a trade because when i was when i was smoking i was up earlier and i was working earlier but i was also taking an insane number of breaks like Mm. one to two breaks an hour to go smoke Mm. whereas now no breaks but also I lost no reason my reason get for getting out of bed every day. Um, you know, um, how I became a morning person uh, was I was reading a lot of uh, stuff on Stoicism and people quoting Plato and uh, maybe Aristotle. I don't really remember. They're, They're all, all Greek to me. <laughs> uh, and I was taking a lot of cold showers. I was trying to up my tea levels, fuck? you know. Uh-huh, I was trying uh-huh. to... to, to um, to 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 sort of uh carpy the diem yeah. and uh I was, did you take any young boys as concubines no no okay. I, you didn't see, go that far yeah no yeah. I, like i'm not a purist you know um <laughs> but i you i don't know, think the stoics uh did that no no the stoics were all about um like living a very uh frugal living real low-key yeah like not um a lot of people think sto- the Stoics were never happy. That's not true. But right. they just were like only the simplest pleasures, you know. Well, that's like, isn't that the guy that lived in a barrel a Stoic? What was it? <laughs> I forgot his name. Guy that lived in a barrel? Yeah, he lived in a what, barrel. What, like one of those little, like with the, yeah, um, when you, like, with the overalls? Like a, like <laughs> like a, a suit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when you uh, gamble all your money away in like a uh, an old Western, you know, kind of <laughs> saloon town. No, no. It was a guy that like, he like lived in a barrel or like under stairs or something and like plato came to town and he like oh, threw shit okay. at him this or is something an ancient, okay i thought it was yeah. like a modern no. person living in a barrel no. okay, okay we don't make barrels anymore which is yeah. another big not coopers, not go, society, go to cracker you know? barrel they're everywhere <laughs> those are simulacra barrels. you know it's funny because there's actually a barrel shortage in the u.s because of the uh the crazy uh change in whiskey production demand because everybody's getting fucking choiced yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and cool. also um you know appreciating the finer things in life right. smelling those cognacs you yeah know? delicious um, tannins but yeah no so i, I was disciplining oh, my okay, body yeah, right. i was doing push-ups got yeah. into the calisthenics and i was like oh you know pain is temporary and if i make myself uh more uncomfortable on purpose more frequently 
then I don't know, maybe it'll help me somewhere else. And life. then you got tendonitis and realized that that is not <laughs> yeah. actually how any of that works. Yeah, <laughs> I rose and I grinded my, my fucking tendons to dust. Why did that make you get up early? Uh, well, this is the thing is, as soon as I got time to do all. Yeah, as soon as I got used to it, uh, and I'm being tongue in cheek about the whole thing, really, it was I started uh, working at a job uh, or part of my job is started taking an earlier shift so that I could get out earlier and That'll enjoy more of like the sunlight, you know, like, and so I was waking up at like five something. Oh. And I was also uh, dating uh, Emily at the time who had a production job. Uh, I think it was at plug power. She was doing like assembly line work and uh, had a really early shift. So mm. we were both getting up early. And then as soon as I got used to getting up early, I realized that the morning was my favorite time of day. Like the, the traffic's way slower. Like yeah. it's just easier to think there's like no buzzing distractions. I haven't started consuming cannabis or alcohol like I do in the evenings. And, you know, I was just, you know, clear and sober and able to like enjoy uh, the morning. But, I feel like physically ill when I wake up like before eight. He really? does not do well in yeah. the mornings. Yeah, no, he, he really. I, I hate it. Yeah. yeah, I feel like nauseous. Well, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with like the light. I don't. Yeah, I, no, I wonder I, what it means. I, I think I'm just like psychologically damaged from high school. Or oh, okay. Yeah, I think that might. Just yeah, I had to wake up at like five a.m. Yeah. to get to school, and I think I've just been revolting against that <laughs> very idea ever since. <laughs> Hell yeah! So today we're talking about productivity. Yeah, and uh, its place in the revolution, and its discontents, and yeah. its discontents. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, that's good. Um. Taking a global perspective on it. Yeah. I'm going to go all over the place with it. It's going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, I was reading about a lot of this, uh, these articles, uh, sort of, uh, you know, spitballing the idea with the crew here as to what we could uh, be talking about. Because a number of articles came across my, um, uh, I guess, Google recommends feed as well as I, I'm on Medium now. And then I'm off. That's, of, that's uh, disconcerting. Huge, huge, I don't, know, like, I don't know why that's worse than like my Twitter <laughs> yeah. feed, but it is. It because is. you curate your friend uh, feed. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, whereas I'm just, you know. Well, you curate it with your searches, I Yeah, assume. I guess. Um, and I was li- reading these articles that all seem to sort of have a theme, which is that like, you know, uh, we're in what some people might optimistically call uh late capitalism um you know uh but the idea is that there's a trend around the world where um the return on capital investment is going down and uh there is an almost cultural obsession with uh efficiency and productivity that that started with like taylorism and like the factory line and like you know ford and mm-hmm. then eventually uh you know like perfected in Japan and with the full five S and everything. And it started as like an institutional um, model of like, okay, we're going to like organize ourselves to be as efficient as possible, which is to say highest amount of um, gross revenue per labor dollar applied. And then it sort of slowly transmuted into like a self help esque individual approach where people were being, you know, coached on, on how to be the most efficient cog in the wheel that they could. And a lot of office job people were, you know, um, sort of like uh, brought into trainings about like time management and trying to like,
like multitask more effectively and like various rates of ROI that they would like personally, you know, sort of apply and navigate through the production apparatus that we call our economy. Um, and then I was reading an article about how there's a huge revolt against that. And that, like, people are now, you know, like these office worker type people are basically hating the word productivity because it's sort of like an anchor around their neck that Mm -hmm. they, you know, are um, feeling, uh, especially now with COVID and everything, so many people working from home, just this, like, sort of self-imposed like psychological guilt it's like and, a cult yeah yeah cult of productivity yeah. yeah yeah and that this isn't just the you know uh middle class american experience this is something that is happening globally mm-hmm. and um then i started reading you know other articles about how uh people were in america dropping out of the labor force like especially men like the the labor participation rate, which is weirdly gendered, it's been around since like I don't know, like the fucking since like the 20s first, or whatever. first world war, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When women started going to work. Yeah, and uh, it's basically been constantly going down since I think like the late sixties. And during COVID, it was at its like lowest point in America. There's this graph that's in one of the articles that you shared, Chris. That will, as always, be linked in the show notes. But it is like dramatic yeah the the downward turn of men in the workforce workforce yes and so this metric just you know for listeners to be a little bit more specific um is the above board tax ein paperwork traced economy if you get a w-2 you're in this you're in this number exactly and the question or the article i was reading um uh, it was not trying to, it was like an economist, right? But they weren't trying to like wag the finger and be like, lazy American men are dropping out of the workforce and they shouldn't. And it's a, uh, it's a, a, a the well, one with like the, are you talking about the one where he's like, here are some ways that men might be making money that aren't in the workforce. Yeah, well, that one was very chiding. Yeah. I it, had, it had some chidings. Like it opens up with like men are doing diddly squat, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But at the same time, it wasn't trying to be like a polemic against the morality of people not participating in the above ground economy. It was trying to simply point out what they were doing instead, which is how are all these people in this accelerating, you know, um, or declining rate of uh, return on investment, et cetera, late stage capitalism in, how are they doing this? How are they making ends meet? How are they feeding themselves? How are they housing themselves? Like, what are they doing instead of the economy? Like, what are all these social forces? Do you want me to read them to you? Please. All right. So I will also say I disagree with Chris's characterization. I think it's actually quite chiding. Um, <laughs> but I, I, it is, it is subtly chiding, but it is definitely. Um, the chiding is there nonetheless. And this is also, it's worth saying, it, this article kind of pisses me off. This is entirely speculative. Like, yes. this guy yeah, is yeah. just like, I don't know, here's some ways. Yeah, it, um, it charts some uh, statistics. That, a couple of yeah. statistics, yeah. Um, so, unemployment insurance mm-hmm. is the Ew. first one. Uh, early retirement, pensions, disability, and lawsuits. And I want to say something about that uh, in a moment. Savings, trading stocks, and Bitcoin, of mm-hmm. course, of dun, course. Dun, dun. Uh, working for cash, aka the under the table economy. Selling drugs. I mean, fucking. That's probably just as much uh, like driving an Uber. You yeah, know? No, like that's. 
Uh, living off family members. Um, illegal work, of course. Front and center here is selling illegal drugs. Sadly, business looks to be booming. That is, if overdoses are any sort of measure. I don't know. It's just like um, living off the land. I don't fucking buy that. <laughs> there, there is not a significant number of the 30 million men who are not getting W-2s that are living off the land. Um, well, I've watched Naked and Afraid. And so yeah, and like, alone. So it's and, at yeah. least those guys. People will yeah. be building them figure four traps. Yeah, yeah that's you true. Know, I, I think that's the last one. Yeah, did I say seven? Living off the land. Yeah, yeah. Real, real, whatever happened to the primitive technology guy? He, like, he fell off, he right? Like, yeah. He fell off. Yeah. Yeah, well, he bought that land. Right. And then I don't know what happened to him yeah. after that. We should look into it. I it, bet there's some kind of Vox explainer or something. Yeah. And then the uh, the other uh, uh, thing, I don't know if you mentioned this, but uh, one was that there's a big uptick in stay-at-home dads. Yeah. And so... Disgusting. Well, you know, so it's it's looking at this from, like, all <laughs> I over. I don't actually which is, that. Yeah, which is to <laughs> say that, like, there are people who are making too much money, right, such that they don't need to work a job because they have investments and they're, you know, making trades on Bitcoin, et cetera. Yeah, and, they're day traders. They're, yeah. You know, yeah. Early retirement style. Like, yep. there's, there's that. There's people who were making too little money in the above-ground economy that they you know, couldn't make ends meet effectively while continuing to like work the vast majority of their awake hours for, you know, an employer and therefore either dropped out of the labor economy entirely living off of family members, et cetera, or, you know, being pushed into what's, you know, colloquially referred to as the black market, which is to say like the non W2 filing economy, whether that be drugs or online sex work or, you know, um, uh, just, Dr- drugs and sex work, yeah, yeah. together hacking, you know, hacking like um, for sex, yeah, and running drugs. numbers. I mean, there are lots and lots yeah. of ways to yep. make money in ways that are not. I wanted to go to the disability insurance and other like welfare programs as mm-hmm. well. There's mm-hmm. an NPR did a piece probably fucking ten years ago by now. I don't know, a long time ago, um, that looked at a phenomenon in areas that were deindustrialized. Or otherwise, the major hiring force in the region was gone, whether it was coal mining or manufacturing or whatever. And they found in these places that the jobs that replaced them often exacerbated existing injuries that many of these men, and it was almost entirely men, had, um, such as having to like sit in a chair for eight hours. Mm-hmm. Um, or they just couldn't find work at all. And so what ended up happening was you had doctors, almost like a little cottage industry in these regions of doctors who would approve, who would do the necessary like paperwork and filing to get somebody on disability insurance. Um, and so in those regions, you have a lot of men who spent 15, 20 years working in manufacturing, for example, who are now essentially retired on disability insurance. But of course, disability insurance pays shit. So they're yeah. dirt fucking poor and they're trapped in this system of like they can't they can't get another job because that would throw off the, that would throw them it, off. It would their, be fraud if yep. they were still to take the disability while trying to find, you know, even part time work. Yeah. So how many of these 30 million men who are not part of the the standard workforce are living on disability insurance, despite the fact that they could otherwise work some job in theory? Um, who knows what those numbers are? But I do think that it's often overlooked at how many parts of the country were just devastated by that or the opioid academ- epidemic. A lot of people are living on government assistance because they became so dependent on opioids that they can't function as like a productive worker 
And then um, it also, there's been trade, uh, anytime there's volatility in a labor market, like for example, with COVID-19, there were a lot of stay at home, uh, people suddenly working from home. And a lot of those people who were maintaining their salaries, you know, doing office jobs from home suddenly were bored and looking around at their home and they were like, oh, well, fuck, I want to get some work done in this home. And that as well as it was, you know, uh, like it, a bunch of forces caused construction and reno and contracting and basically quote unquote skilled labor um, to suddenly be wildly in demand. Yeah. I remember because I was doing a similar kind of thing. I wanted to, you know, renovate my basement, pull out all of the stones and the wood. And I wanted to, you know, uh, f- build a, a shed and blah, blah, blah. And basically getting a contractor to help was a nightmare, yeah. a nightmare and like extremely expensive. And in this environment, and all the materials are extremely, expensive. and the materials yeah. are all extremely in- expensive. And in this market, it, allowed for the laborers to basically have a high degree of uh, leverage in their negotiations in which a lot of them were like, I'll do jobs for cash, yep. like pay me in cash and you guys can- Off the books. Yeah, you can fudge your books, you can make this work, you can, you know, you're this big, you know, contracting firm, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to have to pay taxes on it. And I want, you know, the money I now. Want cash, I, and want, I, want, I want it the day of. The yeah, day I want of. to go home and with 400 bucks in my pocket. Yeah, yeah. and so a bunch of these uh, large contractors that are employing these people basically couldn't get the skilled labor because everyone was demanding cash and there were enough of their competitors that were willing to pay cash that like it caused a sort of move into like the cash economy um, for even these like above board iron, you know, tax paying like large building firms. Yeah. Um, well, and it's all sub subcontractors all the way down in this yeah. industry. So it's like, you know, yeah, big, uh, you know, um, construction conglomerate subcontracts out various projects to these other uh, businesses who then subcontract out from there. And yeah, at the bottom, you end up getting a lot of laborers that are just being paid in cash off the books. I think it's cool. I love to see it. Do more of it. Yeah, anarchy There's works. no reason that people paying, <laughs> making under $100,000 a year should be paying taxes. Um, but yeah, it's so it's so that's very interesting, those numbers. Um, and meanwhile, labor participation from women is at an all time high. Yeah. Which is weird well women are graduating from universities at higher rates than men which means they have more credentials they qualify for the types of administrative jobs secretarial jobs uh middle management jobs that men without degrees otherwise don't uh qualify for so you know i think there are a lot of factors there women are having fewer children than ever before so and the ones that are having children because of the patriarchal misogynist society that we have are very aware through um, learning from their peers, et cetera, that there's like this, you know, quote unquote, mommy tax as it relates to um, getting back into the workforce yep. if they take any significant time off. Whereas this hasn't yet happened yet, slash maybe will never happen for like an equivalent daddy tax. Mm-hmm. And like, I have friends that are stay-at-home dads because they're partner who you know wanted to have a child understood this economic reality 
in their life and decided to go back into the workforce as soon as they could basically uh, get away with, you know, and yeah. in like New York for now, example, like over the last four years, we have uh, the Family Me uh, Medical Leave Act. So there's like a minimum of like, I think, three months of maternity slash paternity leave that happens. But before that, there was nothing. Yeah. And so you had all these uh, women that were like basically giving birth as soon as they were recovered from their postpartum or whatever like their 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 birth process mm -hmm. they went right back to into the their careers so that they wouldn't learn lose the earnings that they would have over the arc of their careers in the men all the promotions you miss out on the yeah, yeah the trainings the social elements of it yeah and, and that men generally felt more confident with their ability to take a four five six year lapse in their um career and then jump back into it mm -hmm. and so you know that like that's an element as well um, but it's just, it's very interesting that like the swing of that trajectory has been so pronounced in American society over like the last, what, like 60 years. And that was in some ways the inevitable outcome of second wave feminism. Like when we decided in this country to build a feminist movement that focused so much on things like equal pay, things career like, advancement. you know, career advancement, uh, you know, things that mostly appealed to middle class white women and not so much to like working class women and women of color. Like that's what that's what progress will end up looking like is more women in the workforce and more stay at home dads. Like those are kind of the the natural outcome of that that political movement. And I'm not trying to say like for better or for worse. You know, I'm not trying to say that like second wave feminism didn't, you know, bring a lot of very wonderful things to women yeah, living very in this country. Important things, yeah. yeah, a lot of very important things. But when you sent but but because so much of the movement was centered around women's role in the economy. Yeah, advancement in, yeah. in you know corporate America. Yeah. Yeah, I think it'll it'll take decades before we find out exactly what impact COVID had on anything, really, but especially uh, the economy like the labor economy because yeah you do have like a ton of people leaving their jobs uh or like going working from home and then realizing that like most of their job is bullshit and like it takes them like an hour and a half to do all of the work that they're expected to do and then everything else was just like useless meetings and so like i mean some of the research that i was doing for for my book did point to like some people like in middle management starting to like think like, well, you know, like now's the time for me to like maybe go out on my own. And like, then mm -hmm. there are like some clinics and schools that help you like start up your own business or were just like packed, mm -hmm. but they were all, but, but it's hard to like get good data from them because they were also helping existing biz businesses navigate the PPP loan system uh, loan yeah. system so like uh, so it's hard to tell like what exactly they were doing during that time period but yeah it, it um there's definitely going to be like a huge shift in ever in in how people pay for stuff and like what they do with their time and it and it seems like what this article is chidingly like uh 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 measuring is just like an interregnum like a very dynamic time where we're not sure what how it's going to sort out and so it looks on paper like a bunch of people unemployed yeah 
in, and uh and, and yeah so it's like you're know, just everyone's on unemployment and bitcoin yeah and, like- <laughs> and, and there's also i think I, maybe we didn't stress enough automation is tending toward less employment like within the w-2 filing like capitalist corporations like they functionally are automating it's not like the sort of damocles that some people sometimes make it out to be almost as like a op to make the threat on labor negotiations, like, you know, more risky, like, oh, we're going to automate your jobs away. Like, but at the same time, they're automating your jobs away. Like, it is a steady force that is actually happening. I think they absolutely are using the threat of automation to crush labor. But my point is that they're, I think, overplaying their hand as a threat to crush labor, but it is also happening. It is, like, also real and, like, slowly making its way through the economy yeah it it, instead of like the robot does the exact same job that you did like a year before automation is turning out to be like instead of being a uh therapist that sees people in an office for an hour in person you are in a in a like a center with like 500 other people that do the same thing and you're just like quick calling people who are on a 30-day trial of some sort of app that does help like mental health care or something and automation we should do an episode on that too because i've been doing some research on the like platform-based mental health care and it is fucked up oh really they can share your information your mental health information with anybody yeah Hip, oh my god talk about hipaa violations yeah right? well that we'll yeah. save that for another yeah. episode yeah but. but so like automation i i think like we we get stuck in this uh like late, I've been late replaced by a dang robot right yeah yeah like this like 20th century like the the assembly worker at the ford plant gets replaced by a robotic arm and that's just like not what automation is starting to look like it's just starting to look like moving people around to make the fronting face like the consumer face look like they're dealing with magical technology when in fact you're just like re- rearranging human labor to the point that like it's hard to see that a human is doing that work and that the human labor is like more repetitive and shitty and precarious well but nope. if you look that's at it i mean i don't know if i necessarily agree with that because automation looks like a mcdonald's that used to have six workers in a shift having three workers in a shift yeah. it means a target that used to have you know 12 people working at checkout has three people working at checkout like right. it is actually the robot arm in the ford factory doing a job that you used to do that's yeah. what a self-checkout well, well, is you're, you're both right because there is the whole mechanical turk element of all of this that is necessary for the automation process so you're getting people to do almost more robotic things in some ways and you're also replacing jobs like what automation looks like to me in the manufacturing industry is like as new technologies roll out there isn't this period of extremely high labor except in the very very beginning when like they're working out the kinks like ultimately like the technology that's becoming available and ever cheaper like i talked about that robotic uh trade show i went to Mm -hmm. and they have fucking welding machines that can 3d scan something find where the weld should be have somebody just click a button on a screen or something and be like weld that and then they'll weld it perfectly and like not needing any programming like a thing you can buy and for welder used to be a really good job yeah. that paid a lot of <laughs> yeah. money yeah. and and they still do in certain elements like on bridges that are not having robots yet underwater welding is super lucrative because it's a thing that's needed for shipping transports and various like you know parts of the mechanical like goods economy that are going to be required but like 
my point is this technology is now like eighty thousand dollars and you buy it once and it just works forever you might need to pay like one annual salary maybe yeah Yeah. and now you have this thing that welds every time perfect which which i guarantee you the price point that the company that makes the welding robot like looked at labor prices to price the robot not anything else connected to it and yeah no Brittany, what you were saying is like i i think that that I felt like I was arguing what you just said, right? Oh, okay. Where I think the like the automation looks like, uh, yeah, like one person watching five people uh, uh, struggle to check out at Target instead of one person <laughs> right. checking you out yeah, at the yeah, line, yeah. right? Because because it, like what was right? because because the or old, watching you steal, right? Which yeah, is yeah, very yeah, often yeah, the yeah. case. Because, yeah. because I, I, what I wanted to decenter right or get away from was the idea that there would be like a robotic arm at the checkout counter like taking things off the conveyor belt and scanning it and putting it in a bag like that's not automation automation is making your job shittier by doing more work where you watch people like five people scan their own stuff it's not and like what got automated is just like it's just like a bet a slightly better user interface that most people can walk up and use right and it's got some weight some like uh uh uh, weights in there and make sure that everything scales make sure you know like you're kind of paying for everything right I like mean, theft th- is also built into yeah, those systems right. like yeah, they know yeah. people will steal loss pre- but they're um, but they're saving more on labor more on labor than, yeah than so, loss prevention yeah yeah, yeah. so that, that's very what, easy to steal at self-checkouts just so people <laughs> yeah, yeah. especially if you have like a partner that can like distract the person who's supposed to be watching everybody struggle for like i don't know like 45 seconds like you know and you, you really don't even need that <laughs> yeah, mostly know. because the workers don't they don't give, give a, a shit. shit. Yeah. yeah. They don't give a shit. Yeah. No, but you know, like, so that's what I'm saying is like, you know, at the grocery store, you got like one person that's like watching a screen that's tied into like the six self out, self checkout things. And like, that's not a robot doing the exact same job that the, in, that a human used to do. It is rearranging human work so that there is, yeah, less of it. It's more tedious and less rewarding. There's less face-to-face human communication, yeah. and yeah. and and it and it's and you're offloading yeah. a lot of the labor to the customer. Yeah. Like. yeah, And then you know, for example, if the uh, Senate decides that they're going to hold Facebook accountable for the content put on it, then suddenly, like tens of thousands of people are going to be traumatized by looking at like the most horrendous shit like in the fucking world <laughs> yeah. all day every day which they because, already do that yeah but it would just happen. only scale up. oh and yeah. they're not even yeah. employees a lot of the time yeah those and people are contractors. independent contractors yeah. the ones who have to get traumatized yeah, with child porn and like tax rate well, they, well, they're in like the Philippines too like yeah a lot, yeah, a lot of them are yeah, overseas they get yeah. paid like absolutely nothing yeah so anyway, uh, I feel like we give a pretty good, you know, like diagnosis of the economic forces that are in place right now. Yeah. You guys want to pivot to sort of the way that various peoples throughout the world are responding? Sure. Yeah, let's do yeah, that. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, so now we can get into like, what are people's like, reactions to the, uh, the situation? Right. Yeah, the yeah. economic reality. The economic so, reality. Ineffable and immutable forces that yeah. control our lives. Yeah. So, well, um, and of course, this isn't going to be exhaustive, right? We're looking at uh, along a theme of like uh, tuning out, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So, chill. Yeah. Yeah. And like one of them is this concept of uh, buen vivir, you know, like the good life, well being is. Uh, uh, and I'm going to borrow a lot from this uh, Journal of Ecological Economics, uh, 
that has a uh, a 2013 article that uh, and if you do any research on this, you'll find that that is around the year that a lot of writing on this came out, which for some reasons that will will become more or less evident as we get go through, right? But um, uh, Buen Vivir emerges as a discourse in the late 1990s, driven by, according to the authors of uh, this article, whose names are uh, Julian Van Hulst and Adrian Beeling. Uh, generally, I try to stay away from uh, articles written by people with, with German last <laughs> names talking about South America, but, you know... Uh, what are you gonna do yeah work with what you got yeah and you know i mean i don't know it's this kind of keeps coming up with this sort of topic Uh, so so in america this is like the time of like wto protests right you know like uh globalization is the word on everybody's mouths not just alex jones yeah no everyone's (laughs) concerned about it yeah yeah so in the 1990s it's uh um when emerges based uh as a uh um based on three factors. One is uh, Latin American social movements, right? Uh, particularly indigenous movements of the late 20th century against neoliberalism. Uh, the convergence between those movements and the ideologies of global movements, like anti-alter globalization, envir- those 90s environmentalist movements that mm-hmm. become very like individualistic and... Like a consumer, a consumer practice, yeah. reduce, reuse, yeah. recycle, yeah, that all that stuff, and uh, and the widespread disenchantment with the idea of development, right? So, uh, especially in the global south and in South uh, South America, where you have lots of governments that are emerging out of military juntas or are still in them to some degree, and you know, you just have like political leaders that have like borrowed millions, billions of dollars. Uh, to basically enrich themselves and then you then they like fall out of power get decapitated whatever and you're like your country still owes like a shit ton of money and it's like what like the guy who made that stupid deal like is dead or is gone and like no one wanted this so like it calls into question like why like should is this like a debt that should be paid which is why um like when argentina basically defaulted on its world bank loan saying like this is you, you this was like basically a uh a a, a a contract signed under duress pr- pretty much yeah you uh, don't live here no more yeah yeah uh they um uh uh um it like sent a, it, it basically cl- caused a a, cri- a credit crisis like a small uh, credit crisis across the globe and that also like significantly changed how the world bank and international monetary fund do the shitty things that they do to the world they, yeah. they they realize that they had to change tactics and now they basically buy entire uh political parties and then feed those political parties information to make uh um uh arguments on behalf of global capital so that's why you get like these neoliberalized uh left center governments in africa and south america because they get fed a bunch of international monetary fund data and then uh you get a bunch of spooks that say like well now we need to privatize the rainforest to, to save it you know shit like that yeah or like uh Pete Bouget writing an op-ed that gets featured yeah. in the new york times exactly. it's like we should really be more hand in glove with the, these countries yeah yeah so um so th- these authors argue that Buen Vivir is the result of a double process of its emancipation from its original cosmological framework, right? So, Ugh, uh, I hate academics. 
<laughs> and of its academic and political re-elaboration. <laughs> yeah. And you were one. Uh, it, so they call it a contemporary discourse and places it within the worldwide flow of discursive interactions around the imperative of sustainability and the idea of development. Right. So um, in so what what happens is essentially you have these indigenous rights movements that uh, take hold really strongly in Ecuador and Bolivia. That's how we get Evo Morales mm-hmm. right in Bolivia. Uh, and uh, however, and and in Ecuador, you get a 2008. Uh, a constitutional referendum where they rewrite the constitution to include rights for Mother Earth. Yeah, nature rights. Yeah, which uh, is sometimes uh, in the Ecuadorian context, I think, uh, founded in something called Macha Pacha or Mama Pacha, sorry. And that is essentially. It's not Mother Earth the way we talk, you know, like, uh, you know, think about like uh, Captain Planet, like Gaia play kind of thing. It's more like um, it, it, it is, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm trying, trying hard to explain it, but it's basically like what nature, but there's people in it and neither win out. Yeah, right. sort of like social ecology's understanding of third nature. Like, so no. Oh, okay. Uh-oh. So here, here, we, here, now we so get into the here, shit. So here's the <laughs> shit, right? Is that most of this kind of stuff, right? So there is the um, the indigenous components to it, but so far, everything it the, the indigenous ideas stop at rhetoric. It seems, except maybe within their indigenous communities, like maybe, like maybe the the the, the ideas uh, as it relates to a nation state level economic actor on the world stage, WTO, re, re, you know, recipient level, it's all talk. So, well, the, these ideas can essentially cannot supplant the uh, capitalist realism. Yeah, well, not the capitalist realism, but like the actual economics of global trade, you either can opt out of it completely and install these ideas, which you can't, which which creates incredible poverty, or you can fudge it, which is like how Bolivia did when they said that, like, okay, yeah, we're we're doing the Buen Vivir thing. But the ecology that we're looking at isn't, like, locally embedded, like, contingent, right? Because all of these ideas don't deal with, like, an abstracted out nature. They deal with, like, the nature that is around you right now. Yeah. And, like, how do you relate to the nature that is around you right now? And and so when Evo Morales, an indigenous person leading an indigenous coalition of people in a democratic government, right? Once they got to power, they were like, we can't do any of this stuff so what we can do is say that ecology is global and we're trying to reorganize economics and ecology at a global scale not the immediate scale and that lets us run lithium mines (laughs) Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, there's there's an argument to be made there, right? Like on one side, you have the local ecology that will be devastated by doing a lithium mine, and on the other side, you have the global reality that there's eight billion people caught up in a capitalist 
economy that is run right now on fossil fuels and that one way out of that would be hypothetically battery electrification i think the more determinative factor here is the fact that your country can't exist if you don't participate in a global economy and if the resource that you have is lithium you don't like you don't have an option like small like latin american countries have to have exports Otherwise, because they they don't have the infrastructure to create their own robust economy in a global market. So it's not just like, oh, if we build these lithium mines, then people in California will have electric cars and they won't be using gas. It's it's really more like in the global scheme of things, this lithium mine is not the end of the world, especially if we can no longer do our work as like a, you know, liberatory indigenous movement without some kind of economy. So is that like, yeah. yeah. So here's another uh, ecological economics uh, article uh, from this one is from 2010, 2017, sorry, by Unai Vialba I'm so sorry. And uh, Ikir, um, Ikir, Ikir um, Edzano, we'll put it in the show now. Uh, and, uh, and here... Welcome welcome to my hell. Yeah, yeah, I'm so <laughs> sorry. Reading theory. Yeah, I'm so sorry about that. But um, uh, so he, he, here they say, Ecuador provides a paradigmatic example of that search for alternatives, given that it includes the concept of Buen Vivir, which they abbreviate just BV. Thank you. Um, in the 2008 constitution, right, so I was, this is referring to the um, Ecuadorian constitution change in 2008, and reflects it in the National Plan for Buen Vivir. Uh, this inclusion was more rhetorical than operative, which is why multiple debates continue on the, uh, on the contents, scope, and priorities, and gradualness of the transition strategies toward this new BV paradigm. Because what they're finding is that, so Buen Vivir was posited as an opposite to these neoliberal were called extractivist policies mm-hmm. right but what ends up happening in the case of bolivia and ecuador are what uh get called neo extractivist policies where you still do the extraction okay but you connect it to uh social good so you uh, tax it or you nationalize whatever is doing the extracting and you use it to fund social programs, which is basically how Nor- how all the Scandinavian countries do Yeah, that's the yeah. Nordic model I mean, of socialism. Isn't that yeah. also the Venezuelan model? Like, in terms of yeah. just petrol yeah. exports? Yeah, yeah. 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 And the, I mean, the, it's the, the Cuban model. I mean, back yeah. when yeah. they were, like, people Sugar. were willing to trade with them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, and so, uh, let's talk about Norway. <laughs> yeah. Right? Because so, from Norway also comes this idea of deep ecology which is different from Murray Bookchin's social ecology. And also the thing that like Derek Jensen, you know, yes. based his whole like revolution yeah. against uh, industrial civilization on. Right. So, um, uh, the, Nor- the Norwegian philosopher Arne Nays, N-A-E-S-S, Nays? Go I don't think it. it matters. Yeah. I don't think he's a listener. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mr. Fjord McSalmon Pants. Um, uh, he, uh, so he came up with this. Um, he, he's largely credited with a lot of deep ecology and like, you know, Murray Bookchin and kind of centers him as the, the asshole that he hates. It says uh, that uh, at first glance, these Andean Amazonian concepts like Buen Vivir, right? 
of human and non-human communities seem to resemble deep ecology's idea and support of mixed communities, as in the case of Nace, for Fjord McPants, uh, communities of humans, bears, sheep, and wolves. Uh, nevertheless, Nace focuses on such communities as a condition for self-realization, a perspective we do not find, at least not couched in those in the Andean Amazonian case. So, um, which is uh, more about uh, the uh, the Pachamama cos- cosmo vision, as he, as this author calls it. Right. I think I, I think so. I think I've lost the thread. Yeah. Uh, what I don't know what deep ecology is. I don't know what that how that relates to Ben Vivier, Gwen Vivier. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't know what these people are arguing about. So deep ecology comes out of uh, the 80s, mostly academic circles, where you try to give uh, agency and ethical and moral standing to nature. However, in deep ecologists' mind, because they are so rooted in sort of Western ideas of, of like society and nature dualism, right, that one has to lose, and it's society. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so d- deep ecology goes into, for example, Jensen's idea of the deep green resistance, which is basically that industrial civilization is a like blight on the planet, and that really what we have to do is we have to fight on behalf of the living Earth against both industrial civilization and be- therefore society, such that future humans animals salmon fish have the potential of existing in the first place yeah and so now here's the here's the issue right is that oh most of the things that i read which i i won't claim to be an expert on this oh come on claim to be an expert you have a podcast (laughs) yeah right yeah yeah i well i'll put it this way because i'm gonna make like a pretty serious like argument so i i feel like i should give some bona fides here right is that like a lot of my academic work has been kind of understanding, like, how do you separate out, like, outside of capitalism as it exists and, like, make or do something complicated within it, right? That was, like, the whole concept of, like, the, the Garden Cities movement, right? Was how do you, it was called a peaceful path to real reform, right? You don't, you don't need a revolution. You can actually buy a piece of land under capitalism and fr- in that land grow something better yeah make right? a, a perennial food forest that's open to your neighbors uh, well, you build a whole city yeah right that that isn't just nature it's like and society the grid, but it's the both. grid is capitalism yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay got right? it um you know so like, i have studied a good amount of that that i consider myself an expert in generically but what i'm reading here is that there are at least two in this case right um occurring phenomena or like philosophies that happen at about the same time in different places you have this uh buen vivir in south america that is kicking off in resistance to neoliberal colonialism colonialism and then in the colonial center you have deep ecology which is this Uh. idea that um society cannot live in harmony with nature and so as chris said you have to take nature's side 
which also means speaking for it, which is confusing. Yep. Right. And then it's fight very, and then fight for it. Very noble savage type trope, right? Yeah. That like yeah, human yeah. beings were at some point able to live without extracting from nature. Right. And which so, is not has never been the case for primates it, even. Right. Like, and so that and so that's the issue like anthropologically or, or archaeologically speaking, right, is that these these Buen Vivir movements um, claim and make these, again, right, like these cosmological rhetorical arguments that this one is different because it it pulls from, like, Andean concepts of, like, living with nature. But, yeah, I, I do feel like there is, like, a noble savage element in here because a lot of these societies, like, were not ecologically sustainable. No. Like they, plenty of indigenous peoples were they they they, they died the fucking They're mammoths yeah. like yeah, yeah. But, at, but at the same time you know just to be to lay the the argument on the side of like the deep ecology they lived in these ways that maybe killed the mammoths but they lived that way for hundreds of thousands of years whereas we are nuking the planet with carbon dioxide and the anthropocene's like devastation of the in the ecocide in like a matter of decades well don't get me wrong i'm not saying that like we're doing a great job yeah, i'm yeah. just saying that you know <laughs> i'm just saying that i have seen many instances where westerners and mm-hmm. especially academics will co-opt ideas from indigenous movements yep. and from um, oppressed peoples mm-hmm. and turn it into a new concept that's going to save the world. When in reality, what you end up getting is a bunch of confusingly worded journal articles that shroud <laughs> themselves in, you know, the kind of it's like stealing valor. Essentially, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. But, but like, all right. So, for example, the Zapatistas they declare war on the Mexican state because it's industrial, civilizational, and like down with the Yankee agenda. And they basically get a bunch of AKs. They they live. It's an indigenous movement. It's their indigenous people. They live off the land in the jungles of uh, Chiapas. And they basically like say, "Hey, like, don't fuck with us, or we'll kill you." And we're gonna live the way that we've lived. Like, is that? But they wanted mm-hmm. land reform. They lived yeah. off yeah. the land because they were forced to. They wanted land so they could farm it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, that's, yeah. And I think that a lot of the sort of the way that this academic concept colors things Mm -hmm. is as if you can somehow build a, you can live as a human in a complex society without needing to change nature. And I don't think that that's how humans have ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think the the social ecology breaks away from the deep ecology. So let, let, I think it's time. Okay. Yeah, it's let's time. do. So, why did Book Chin hate yeah. deep ecology? So, uh, just right off the bat, the title of the article is "Social Ecology versus Deep Ecology." So, Book Chin does not believe that there is any way that the two are diametrically opposed. There's no synthesis. It Got is it. just one against the other. They are not reconcilable. And this was published in the summer of 1987. So he saw it. Like immediately as something he did not like. Eighty seven, you said. Eighty seven. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is public. This is published in Green Perspective. Birth, birth year. Yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. So this, this argument is old as we are. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, it was uh, published in a Green Perspectives newsletter of the Green Program Project. Man, I just can't get enough of that newsletter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bookchin is. Uh, setting us up by like just talking about like you know like what's in the air what is the the issue 
that causes us to even consider the difference between social and deep ecology. Vibe right? check. Yeah, he's doing a vibe <laughs> check, right? And he says, uh, and I, I should, uh, uh, content warning, Bookchin is an asshole. Yeah. This man has fire in he's his heart. He's got zero chill. Zero he's chill. not Tong Ping. Yeah, no, he's standing up. All right, so uh, they're beginning, they being just people, are beginning to sense that there is a tie-in between the way people deal with one another, the way they behave as social beings, men with women, old with young, rich with poor, white with people of color. He was using people of color in 87. Yeah, my man was ahead of his time. Uh, First world with third, elites with quote-unquote masses, uh, and the way they deal with nature. The question that now faces us is, what do we really mean by an ecological approach? What are a coherent ecological philosophy, ethics, and movement? How can the answers to these questions and many others fit together so that they form a meaningful and creative whole? Right. So, the, so right. So he's, he's, he is asking that question of like, do you look back in history to find like better examples of humans living with nature? Do you come up with something new, a la Grimes from last episode? <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, right um, and uh, uh, and so he says that there are these two conflicting tendencies. So he says, let us agree from the outset that ecology is no magic term that unlocks the secret of our abusive nature. Right? Fuck, you, I was banking on that. Yeah. Nope. No, you can't just say, well, we'll Ooh, just use an abusive eco- nature. I yeah. Like yeah. He's like, well, uh, you know, he's like, you just you just can't say like. Uh, you can't just say the earth ecology. gets a vote. Yeah. 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 He says it is a word that can be easily abused, distorted, and tainted as democracy and freedom can. Right. He says, Darn tootin. Yeah. Nor does ecology put us all, whoever we may be, in the same boat against uh, against environmentalists who are simply trying to make a rotten society work by dressing it in green leaves and colorful flowers while ignoring the deep seated roots of our ecological problems. <laughs> right? Shots fired. Yeah. Right? Jesus. So, so he's saying, like, it's not just ecologists against environmentalists, which is a term that mostly he made up, right? The term environmentalist. Is a term that he made with up. shade from the jump? Yeah, yeah. As like people who just like to color things with leaves and flowers and say that, well, wow. you know, what we've, what we have going, we'll be fine. We just need he to really make it He really was a crotchety motherfucker. Oh, God, I love him so much. Yeah. And the, the deep ecologists call that type of environmentalism bright green environmentalism and call their own environmentalism deep green environmentalism. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Continue. Very yeah. offensive to lightly colored plants. <laughs> I, I'm tired about this colorism. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the greatest difference that are emerging within these so-called eco- uh, ecology movements, deep and social, right, are between a vague, formless, often self-contradictory and invertebrate thing called deep ecology and a long-developing, coherent, and socially-oriented body of ideas that can best be called social ecology. So, I don't know if you caught that. He said, y'all spineless. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But he doesn't like deep ecology. Man. Okay. Uh, is parachuted into uh, deep ecology has parachuted into our midst quite recently from the Sunbelt's bizarre mix of Hollywood and Disneyland spiced with homilies from Taoism, Buddhism, spiritualism, reborn Christianity, and in some cases, ecofascism. While social yeah. ecology draws its inspiration from such outstanding radical decentralist thinkers as Peter Kropotkin, <laughs> William Morris, and Paul Goodman, among many others who have advanced a serious challenge to the present society with its vast hierarchical sexist class ruled statist apparatus and militaristic history i think he'd put himself in that that long list of people too yeah (laughs) tell tell us how you really feel and so now he says 
Let us face these differences bluntly. He wasn't being oh, blunt really? yet. Oh, really? Yeah. No, yeah. Are we going to start is, doing this? This now? is when he lit the blunt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Deep ecology, despite all its social rhetoric, has virtually no real sense that our ecological problems have their ultimate roots in society and in social problems. It preaches a gospel of a kind of original sin that accurses a vague species called humanity as though people of color were equitable with whites, women with men, the third world with the first, the poor with the rich, and the exploited with the exploiters, right? So he's saying that, like, when you say humanity is the problem it's like who kimosabi like who's the who's humanity here right you know like who, not who's me the, not me yeah like who's yeah. the humanity here because yes there are differences between humans interact with the land but there are also antagonistic differences yes yeah and in the 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 core argument of social ecology is that it's those social differences that lead to ecological problems yep right ecological crisis is a part of the social crisis yeah and so the and so this becomes i think the problem with uh buen vivir as described as far as i can tell most of the time in say for example like an ecuadorian western formed constitution right because a constant state constitution is a western idea it was imposed on countries all around the world by the united states and 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 various little like little cute little non-profits that we set up that would just go write constitutions all over the world yeah yeah yeah, Yeah, yeah. we're helping yeah and so like that that right so that's already the problem is that like if you try to do these um uh uh projects that are steeped in um uh 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 what's the word i guess like first nations or uh um, indigenous peoples, indigenous people's yeah. projects right indigenous people didn't have a fucking state right so like when you write in these ideas into something like a state constitution they don't work because we also it have scale. it it doesn't scale and it also doesn't have um the the only way you can kind of shoehorn it, it it in is with legal standing right is is like the now the you know like the the earth has legal standing which is how brazil did it it's how and it's how uh um uh uh ecuador has done it right where they they say that like there's some sort of standing either brazil meant for the city you have a right to the city right and and ecuador has, says that earth has standing and but all of those only work when you can defend them in court, basically. And the Earth can't hire its own attorney. Right. Yeah. No. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> or its own army for that matter. Right. So so what yeah. you right. So what you end up with are these uh pro the, you, you even if you try to do social ecology in these uh juridical systems, I don't know, I don't want to get too Foucauldian with it, right? You know, but it's like, you know, it, within like these state constitutions, you end up with, nevertheless, with this deep ecology mindset of like you need to be a human defending a separate nature right if that makes sense and social ecology is all about making third nature which is you know humans and nature consciously working together for the betterment of the two yeah 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 and so the uh and so what what becomes uh disturbing right is that and you know i won't keep like reading line for line bookchin's like just 
absolute banger of a screed against yeah, psychologists. But it's because in the, it, it, it's in the notes. Because it keeps going. Well, you know, it's, but it's an academic paywall, isn't it? No. No? no. Then it's in the notes. Oh, no, it's beautiful. Fuck yeah. No. Um, he has this part about how Woody Guthrie, a Communist Party centralist with no... Uh, <laughs> who, like, loved Stalin. <laughs> um, uh, anyway. Uh, he doesn't come for Woody, does he? Well, yeah, he does. Yeah, I mean, he says deep ecology. No, not Woody. <laughs> he says deep ecology mingles His Woody Guthrie. Killed fascists, <laughs> right? Oh no. Uh, uh, deep ecology mingles Woody Guthrie, a Communist Party centralist with no more, who no more believed in decentralization than Stalin did. <laughs> Parentheses, whom he greatly admired until his physical deterioration and death. Which is a weird way. Put that. Yeah, you don't um, need to celebrate that so yeah, hard, my man. Yeah, with yeah. Paul Goodman, an anarchist who uh, would have been mortified to be uh, placed in the same tradition with Guthrie um, in philosophy, Spinoza against Heidegger, right? So he's like saying that like deep ecology like he's, puts together all these people that don't belong together <laughs> in in a lot of its uh, arguments. But the um, the place that he goes with this is essentially deep ecology can never get away from like these Malthusian arguments of like, well, there are too many people. Yeah. And man because, versus nature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's when you kind of like just very easily slip right into being a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, specifically an eco-fascist. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where he brings up Arnie Nays, Mick Fjord, Salmon Pants guy. All right. Okay. Right. Yeah. So the, um, uh, because uh, Nays is essentially, yeah, just someone that uh, um, is is the bri- gives you the bridge between like uh, environmentalism and maybe there are too many people on the planet. Like, okay, a lot, of, right, it, yeah, a lot yeah. of this stuff does, and that. maybe some of those people are yeah better for the environment than others. <laughs> than others. Yeah, yeah, and, and like, <laughs> namely the author. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, this will probably be like the last thing I I, I read from it, because, but it, it is really good and ties directly into what we were saying about how like the fetishization of uh, indigenous populations like ignores the fact that they weren't all great stewards of the earth, mm-hmm. right? Is um. If nature worship, with its bouquet of wood sprites, animistic fetishes, fertility rites, and other such ceremonies, magicians, shamans, and shamanesses, shamans and shamanesses. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, I feel seen. Uh, animal deities, goddesses, <laughs> and gods that presume to, reflect, presume to reflect nature and its forces, if all taken together pave the way to an ecological sensibility in society, then it is hard to understand how ancient Egypt managed to become and remain one of the most hierarchical and oppressive societies in the ancient world. The pantheon of ancient Egyptian deities is filled with animal and part animal, part human deities with all presiding goddesses and gods. They were literally nature, nature worshippers. Yeah. Indeed, yeah. the Nile uh, river, indeed, the Nile River, which provided the life-giving waters of the valley, was used in a highly ecological manner. Yet the entire society was structured around the oppression of millions of serfs and opulent nobles, a caste system so fixed, exploitative, and deadening to the human spirit that one would wonders how notions of spirituality can be given priority over the need for critical evaluation of society and the need to restructure it. So they made some wonders, but they could have made better wonders if they weren't hierarchically oppressive. That's kind of the idea. You know? With a highly domesticated, spiritually passive, yielding, and willless population schooled for centuries in flowing with the Nile, to coin a phrase, <laughs> the Egyptian ruling strata indulged themselves in an orgy, orgy of exploitation and power for centuries. So, shit, man. Yeah. Okay. Good point. He makes some good points.
All right. So we've got Buen Vivir yeah. in the South, and it's it stands for good living, pretty well-intentioned, basically, you know, at least uh, in the outset, um, based off of uh, sort of the indigenous um, uh, way of life that, that didn't center capitalist accumulation, but instead community well-being being something that from a social ecological perspective um, is uh, something that is apparently being efforted at as an organizational ethos. Uh, I mean, well, then, then there is also the part that like what I just read of like, even those indigenous societies were not like nice. Well, also, over to also, here's, here's, here's what I don't, understand is you know I, I like read all the stuff that you shared about ben vivere but like when i don't know why i keep saying that when <laughs> vivere but like there's nothing to sink my teeth into yeah like there is no proscriptive element yeah. there's no and i think that that is at the heart of a lot of maybe maybe not of bookchin's distaste for it for deep for deep ecology is that it's rhetorical mm. it sounds very nice but it changes nothing and right. if anything, it is a salve for our own wounds that are self-inflicted. We, we say these nice things, um, and in doing so, it's, we, we release ourselves from any culpability because we have recognized the indigenous ways of these, you know, these other people who are purer and more nobler than we are. And let's fucking set up those lithium mines. Like that to me is <laughs> yeah. what I like. I, I'm having a hard time taking much more away from it yeah, other yeah. than just like, it sounds like something that NGOs put on their, put on their about page and then, you know, like offload old computers to Ghana so that, you know, they can rot in the seaside there. Like I don't. Yeah. Because it is, I think also the important part that book chin says that I, that was the last quote that I just had is that also, even if you do gesture toward first nations or like, ancient civilizations uh that's not great either right because they have yeah. like gods and deities that like sure are based in nature but, but are like harmless. not i think yeah i mean it's it's i mean i, I think it's, it's all, academically dishonest but yeah. in terms of the real world where all the rest of us live that isn't <laughs> the ivory tower um there is actual like maybe harm from that practice yeah that right. uh yeah. you know we should Deal, deal with, with. Yeah, yeah yeah because because when you do like even if you do like erase the point that like it that it, pointing to uh, first nations isn't like a like a cure-all yeah when you when you look at how you implement it it seems to always end at these rhetorical flourishes of like putting it in the constitution and then no one knows how to like whether or not that helps them build a lithium mine or save the rainforest Right, like you, yeah. it's it's because it's always up to some judge. A lot of the time, be like, no, yeah, this is an apparatchik. Like, uh, some judge could say, like, no, I think the Earth is fine with this. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and then like, I actually like, had coffee with Gaia yesterday, yeah. Yeah. and she said that it was okay to like yeah. mass burn this part of the forest. Yeah, so the, yeah, I mean, I these guess, are like, really really hard to well, the the way. So I'm actually extremely interested if our South American listeners, because I know you're out there, I, I see the chartable and the the IP and again <laughs> all VPNs. But yeah, go on. who knows? I you know we, we um, have one know. confirmed. Yeah, we have one. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Wendy. Hey, um, uh, yeah, uh, Ch Chilean. Um, 
but it, let us know uh, what you think about all this. And if you have, you know, uh, agree with the, what we're saying or if uh, you have a different perspective. Yeah, I'd love to hear from somebody who has any kind of experience with this. I don't really know what it is. I don't know if it's like a an explicit political movement. I don't know if it's like a um like a I everything that I can find about it is just kind of like ac- academics talking about it and I don't I haven't found anything from like a a person on the ground who isn't connected with sort of more elite knowledge ways. Globalist. Uh, yeah. Globalist. <laughs> it's all globalists. Oh, yeah, that was the other um, thing is like when I did a social or a, a Google Scholar search for this, it like, if you could graph it, it like shoots up in like 2012 and then like dies out by 2017. So there was like some sort of vibe i don't like which is you know like that five years is basically as long as it takes you to go through graduate school so i can imagine if there was like it was just like maybe really trendy uh in south american uh um uh graduate programs at the time i i don't i don't know i don't know if it was just a trend or or what but or it could also be like the rise of bolsonaro uh yeah. and uh other kind of like right-wing reactions kind of makes it like well maybe we have like more pressing concerns now than arguing whether or not we're actually ecologists or not right yeah. you know like so yeah. like maybe that that that's that could be it too all right are we ready for a hard pivot to the eastern hemisphere yeah let's do it hard uh, pivot <laughs> <laughs> so this comes uh, care of uh, New York Times, which, uh, you know, is uh, definitely as it relates to China to be taken completely at face value and not with a pinch <laughs> of salt at all yeah. uh, as potentially, uh, you know, a dogmatic um uh, uh, propaganda arm. Um, but this is about Tong Ping or lying flat as I understand the translation is. And um, this basically is a article that sort of highlights a social movement. And what I mean by that is a, um, a lot of internet activity that was organized um, around this concept. And then uh, quickly, allegedly, because I don't know shit outside of like these channels, like the New York Times, but what goes on in China, uh, censored, uh, where like, there's this um, uh, gentleman, Lu Huazong, um, and apologies. <laughs> Don't you love three white people reading a bunch yeah. of names oh from God. all around the world? We're we'll good. just do a whole bonus episode. I'm just going to call him Lu, all right? Yeah, uh, call for, him Lu. For, for, from here. Um, uh, uh, apparently, this, uh, this guy uh, basically popularized this phrase in China after uh, f- working for, I think, uh, several years in a job with a 996, which is 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week. So that's 12 times six. So that's a 72 hour work week for everybody who's uh, challenged with numbers, such as myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> that guy needs a union. Yeah. And uh, basically, he was, you know, experiencing like a downwardly mobile, um, you know, lifestyle where he was working more and more for less and less and having a harder time. And basically, it was like his body was like breaking down. And he was, you know, going through like sort of um, psychological distress, uh, working so hard. And he basically just said, fuck it, and decided that he was just going to live a different lifestyle instead of being like a go-getter um, and chasing, you know, the uh, Chinese equivalent of the American dream. Um, he was just like, you know what, I'm just going to figure out what I can do to get by with as little as possible, and I'm just going to chill out. I'm going to lie flat. 
and he wrote a article. That's what the that that's what the phrase means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tang Ping, and uh, he wrote an article that became like uh, you know quite buzzworthy and being shared around in Chinese social media before it was censured. Um, and a lot of people were like, "Yeah, this is pretty much my experience. Like, mm-hmm. I'm having a really hard time, like, trying to get ahead in this society, and like, I don't even know why I'm trying to get ahead, and I'm having all this trouble with my body and my mind, you know, trying to compete constantly for ever increasing personal." accumulation and like i'm not feeling it and um uh china allegedly you know according to the new york times uh, uh censored uh this entire topic and there was like a group of i think four hundred thousand people that were you know um discussing this and like you know f- formed you know like a google group equivalent or something like that to try to like you know uh share tips about how to get by with less and just um and that this, you know, the, the Chinese government allegedly, like, put the kibosh on this. Um, and, uh, yeah, like, I don't know too much about it other than that. And I just sort of look at it as, like, a single uh, indice of just, like, what our fellow humans on the other side of the Great Firewall um, are, you know, uh, experiencing as it relates to this moment. And uh, just thought it was interesting to sort of discuss, you know, like... Um, and there was a song that got uh, made by somebody who was like a musician. He put it up, but it also gotten taken down. So then used some type of VPN and put it up on YouTube. And maybe we'll play out the episode with that. Because I just thought it was a really cute song. It's just like a YouTube video where he's lying down the uh, uh, his back and uh, singing uh, while playing a guitar. And the lyrics are cute, too. Um, and they go, lying down is really good. Lying down is wonderful. Lying down is the right thing to do. Lie down so you won't fall anymore. Lying down means never falling down. Um, and I don't know how that relates to like a total practical, you know, uh, way we get out of this late capitalist, like, uh, you know, moment. Uh, but I thought it was really poetic and, and, and nice. And, you know, I'm uh, on the theme of, trying to personally figure out how to lie down more, more mostly psychologically, like taking a social media break. Um, but also I'm about to go on vacation and I feel all types of ways about it. One of which is that like, I basically, you know, as we talked in the very beginning of the episode, um, I'm like, uh, constantly neurotically trying to be as productive as possible. And I like, don't let myself lie down pretty much ever. Um, but I'm purposefully going on a motorcycle ride with my uh, wife. It's actually our honeymoon anniversary. And I'm going to be doing a lot of the equivalent of lying down. Like I'm not going to be doing shit all for productivity in either my personal or economic life. You will not be lying down while on the motorcycle. Yes, yes, that's yes. Clear. Please, nobody worry about that. I am not stunting. <laughs> uh, although that would be pretty cool, you know, just like planking while going yeah. down the highway. No, the don't do that. <laughs> yeah, Hospital ERs are full. And expensive. To, yeah. So so what do you guys think of this whole uh, Tong Ping thing? You think this is all Western propaganda or w- what's your idea? I think well, basically everything about China that's published in a mainstream news press is propaganda. Like all of it, I think is, but um, that doesn't mean that it's not that these kind of brutal work schedules are not real. Doesn't mean that this uh, individual and like his story is not real. But I take everything that is published about China and Western media with a grain of salt. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if yeah, like 
You think he's an op? (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say if like 60, 70% of uh, workers in China work as hard as like nurses do in the United States right now. Yeah. You know, like that's, uh, you know, like, like brutal hours uh with little sleep that in those hours like change at a whim and and it all fucking sucks and it's for and it's difficult to see what it's for because at least i mean like i had imagined like at least up until like a decade ago even like it was very clear that there was a national project to modernize right and that like we're building these enormous cities that are going to be the future of China and we're going to become a global leader and, and, and shit. And then like, and then you have a generation that was born into like being in that ascendant position. And now it's like, it fucking sucks. It, it fucking sucks. Yeah. Now you're just kind of like treading water or like keeping, trying to keep things stable. Well, and like, when you look at like what is coming out of China that I, I do believe is real, right. Is like stuff like the, the Evergrande um, default, where like their second largest developer in the country uh, just doesn't have any money. Yeah, yeah. Right? declining rates of profit yeah, for these yeah. like large scale like business institution real estate developers. Well, it, well, and like when you like look at Evergrande, like it, it it is like kind of like it indexes or like gives examples for like all the other like just. Sh- shitty stuff that happens with a fast growing whatever you want i would probably say capitalist economy right where you um there's a lot of glad handing and uh you know like special deals you know it's all donald trump shit right you know where he's like you know like you pay me or jared kushner yeah right yeah where like a lot of evergrande's uh development n- never happened in like first tier like global cities it was always in like these secondary like satellite cities and towns where Evergrande did a lot of their cons- their development and construction, and, and it's it, sort of like the mil- American BlackRock. Uh, yeah, well, well, it's a little hard to compare them because, okay. but anyway, they they would like go in and say like, okay, mayor of you know like small medium sized city, like like we'll give you like the like plum a plum spot in like the bonds that we're going to issue to to build this thing and you'll be the first to be paid off and we'll give you an extra like seven percent or something you know like they would give them all these deals and the way that they would finance those deals was in the the profits that they made from the last one so they they can't stop right if they ever stopped building it would fall apart because the the Grow or die. Well, because because it's a fucking uh, Fonzie cream, right? You know the 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 development from the 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 last development, uh, the the corruption from the last development gave them enough money to do a corruption for the next one, and so when uh, the pandemic hit and construction slowed down, the whole thing was uh, like threatened to fall apart. And now the issue is going to be like someone is going to bite the bullet and like lose money as Evergrande falls apart. Yeah. It looks like the Chinese state is not going to bail them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so well, well here's the thing, right? It's like the Chinese state is a large stakeholder in, in a the, lot of this yeah. debt. Right. So they're going to make sure they're fine. Okay. Right. And then, but Evergrande has, uh, you know, like every major like bank around the world has issued 
has like bought bonds is a coupon holder for Evergrande. So your best bet, like BlackRock, uh, Citibank, Bank of America, you know, all of them are going to probably lose a bunch of money. Yeah, fair enough. But, but- and, and so I bring that up really only because like that, I can imagine being my age or younger in China, seeing that, seeing like working 12 hour work days and like six days a week six days a week and being like well i mean like if i'm working that hard why do they get to be bailed out i mean it's a 2008 crisis all over again yeah and you did get a lot of american people just like saying fuck it you know and they're like you know it seems like a pretty human reaction to that sort of really if you can get away with it then yeah fuck it yeah i think (laughs) if that were an option for people in the united states yeah a lot of them would do it well apparently it's an option for a lot of men (laughs) bringing it back full circle yeah i mean the intent of this episode was to talk about like we didn't even touch on like degrowth and you know like kind of dropping out of the capitalist mode of production and accumulation and all the things that inherit in it and i don't really think that like that's practical for most of us um there's a whole do nothing for climate uh day that, that yeah you know, do, yeah do nothing for climate it's sort of the I mean, opposite of a climate rally you have to travel to yeah here's the thing i kind of have an axe to grind with some of this stuff all right grind um, that axe well you know i mean I, I sort of hate to do it like look this 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 young man from china should not be working 12 hour days agreed no one should um and but i see an overcorrection to the undue stresses and strains of being a worker under capitalism in which we are worked too hard for too long. I see an overcorrection in the political left in this country, which is that doing nothing is a mode of politics. Yeah. And it surfaces in a very particular type of self-help discourse Mm -hmm. um, that's very popular on Instagram where, you know, everybody is just constantly telling each other that, like, you don't have to work and it's okay and you don't have to do that thing. And, you you know, you can just... I'm proud of you just for waking up today. I mean, yeah. like (laughs) No, that is is a real thing. is resistance. I have seen that exact phrase on my Instagram feed from multiple people, like, for weeks now. Well, you know, I think that has more to do with, like, extreme mental health discourse which is but yeah but yeah well but no i think that's exactly what britney's talking about yeah so here's the thing everybody everybody's wellness manifests differently mm-hmm. um obviously uh i've been uh, i've had a mental illness my entire adult life and i've gone through phases of doing nothing and doing too much and blah 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 and, and in my experience for myself and for many of the people that i know um wellness comes from doing things that are enriching and that uh, yield results that feel meaningful. And I just, I don't know, I really worry, and I see this especially with a lot of younger people, that like not doing stuff is doing politics. And I'm, it's not. I'm sorry. Like, it's not. I want everyone to take care of themselves as best they can. I think people should take days off when they need them. I think people should chill. I think people should relax. But we got to a point where that in and of itself was sufficient to be considered political work. And that I worry about because Mm. there's a lot of work to be done. And we need people. We need people to help. Like I see political projects now that are struggling from a basic lack of bodies Mm. um, wearing shoes, doing things. And so 
Uh, you don't have to wear shoes. I'm fine. Yeah. I see you. You're, <laughs> at, you're, and, you're valid. And at the same time, those types of things that you, you know, periodically throw yourself extremely heavily into are things that are double-edged swords for you. You know, oh, like, yeah, you get burnt out and yeah. you are worthless. I've, that's happened to me <laughs> many times where I've burnt out so bad that there was, you know, two months after which I just couldn't really accomplish much of anything. Yeah, but you and held I, this podcast down the entire time so well. <laughs> so kudos and thank I mean, you. I guess all of that is just to say that I don't know. I don't. I don't have any good answers either. But I. I. I hope that people keep in mind that uh, we have a world to win, mm-hmm. and we won't win it by laying down. Unless it's a general strike. And everyone's laying down no, at the same time. No, because the general strike is, <laughs> is not just about work. general strike no, is a I lot know, of work. I, I it's know. not just about yeah. taking it. But that's another thing, though. Is yeah, like, I know. You see I, I'm, being, like, I'm being facetious. Strike, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they think that's the that day that I means... took off work already. So now everyone's got to do it. Otherwise, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, feel I'm like an call asshole. In sick. Yeah. Like that's not what a general strike is. Yeah, general no. strike is everybody in the streets like throwing bricks through Starbucks windows. That's a general strike, and it's a lot of work. I don't know. Maybe it's like out of place in this episode, but like that was my first thought in reading some of these things is just that like, you know, where, well, I I won't belabor it. We're telling a lot of young people that they don't have to do anything hard. And I think that that is a bad move for the left. I, I think there's a lot of signals that are all happening in some diametrically opposed uh, conditions all at once. And that like, you know, um, one of the things that I've been struck by is this whole idea of self care being brought into the workplace. I don't know if you guys have experienced this at all, but like, if anything is an op, it's self-care self-care is is a fucking op man so self-care especially in the workplace is one of these things that organically came out of social media and people like uh existing in this late stage organically uh-huh i know all right mr fbi agent (laughs) (laughs) i think that like literally people were experienced a lot of burnout and they were seeing themselves you know grinding till they fell and then realizing how fucked up it was and then from personal experience being like hey like i learn this thing it's called self-care and it like saved my fucking mental take care of yourself yeah Yeah. absolutely and that like that is obviously necessary which is to say like these times we live in and probably a lot of times before i mean fuck think about what it was like to live through world war ii or whatever um very stressful you know times are super super stressful and doing basic shit like going for a walk taking deep breaths like eating good food getting lots of sleep like all these things are like requisites to having the capacity of like good mental and physical health so that you can handle the challenges of the day. And when I see it come into the workplace, like through like, you know, there's a a wellness program my company has and like, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to throw too much shade on it. It's like, I think something that's good and like giving sort of like de facto permission from the corporate end saying, Hey, self-care and like doing, taking care of yourself is important, at least ostensibly, um, is a good thing. But what I couldn't get away from noticing is how individual and atomized it was all. It's very individualized. And so I was thinking like so much of this, like I put my, my shoes into, or I put myself into the shoes of like parents that both work jobs that have to deal with the children and just the constancy of that urgent 
necessity that is both important and urgent of like taking care of your kids being like something that makes existing in like this, you know, ever increasing productivity environment that we find ourselves in like extremely difficult. And I was trying to think of what it would be like to be self caring as somebody who is responsible for another human life. That's like constantly in like, you know, a state of precarity because of so many things. Um, and like, it's, it, it, it seems ridiculous to tell somebody who's like, you know, working, you know, two jobs, like hand getting the groceries, you know, paying the bills, like doing all the stuff, like managing their kid and like all the stuff to COVID blah, blah, blah. And then be like, and here's some requisite homework, self-care. Well, you've got to do this. If one of those jobs is at Amazon, then you can go in the pod, the wellness (laughs) pod, and you can cry while some very relaxing music plays in the background. And just the idea that like, the individual responsibility being thrust even from like the corporate agents that are like driving the demand for productivity ever increasingly onto the individual just seemed like tone deaf. And I was like, well, what's the alternative? And the alternative would be like community care. Right. And, you know, I've, you know, have thought about different things as an atomized agent within this economy that I could do to help out. Like during the beginning of the pandemic, I was like doing free food grilling nights and I would, you know, open up my sidewalk, like by my house and I was grilling food and anybody who was hungry just got food that I was grilling. And now I'm just helping out my friends who have kids and like watching the kids one day a week. And that's a huge fucking boon to them so that they can like do self care literally like, and that they couldn't do that easily by themselves. Like the whole, like it requires help from us all. Cause we live in a society, which like we say as like a, almost like a, a curse, but the good thing is that it's not a curse. Like, you know, we can actually help each other out and that like, it just takes a breaking out of the mindset that we're only responsible for just us to make it obvious that we can help each other. And that like, for example, I and me, me and my wife are unlikely to have kids. Like we talk about it, but like right now it's probable that we're never going to have kids, but we don't dislike kids and we like to be around kids. And so we spend time with our friends, kids and like, it works out. And it's just like one of those things that's like, I don't know, just outside of the the narrow myopic view of like self-care as, you know, the requisite homework for, you know, surviving in this moment. I think you do for yourself by yourself versus. And it helps yeah, if you buy it. face masks and bath bombs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Or, or, sub- a, or a subscription so to a meditation It's very app. feminized. Is oh, another, absolutely. Yeah. Is another yeah. Yeah. issue that I take with that whole discourse uh-huh. is yeah. that it is like. I, I don't know. It the whole thing just reeks of fucking op to me. Yeah. But you know, we really need to get a masculinity episode under our belt. Oh, We've we been should. Saying yeah, to do that. Be fun. We're gonna do that. Yo, for I'm a ready while. to perform. I re- yeah. <laughs> I'm ready to perform my gender role. Yeah, but um, yeah, I see where you're going with that, Chris. And I would also just like add on to it, like universal fucking childcare. Yeah, you know? obviously, right? Yeah, like, right? Social programs like, and yes, less work are yes. the actual answers. Right. To this question. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like if exactly. you, it's it, you know, it's like it's I, yeah. All, all every time I see something about self care, if whether it comes from like an employer or otherwise. I just like kind of imagine like someone in like a pit full of snakes, and <laughs> and, like, and, and so like, if you could say that to someone in a pit full of snakes, like does it make any sense? It puts right? the lotion on or gets the <laughs> the hose. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, but you know, like so if, if like someone in like immediate danger, right? Uh, because uh, I should have said the snakes are venomous. 
right? <laughs> yeah, but it, you know, like, if, if someone in immediate danger or like not being able to care for themselves, if you're telling them to care for themselves, like that doesn't make any fucking sense. But if you live in a fucking society where there are social programs, then like, and then, then like at some point, like uh, 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 self help, right? That genre may make sense if like it is actually an individual problem where you had the option to take care of yourself and you didn't but a lot of people just don't have that option like there's just no option to to care for yourself so that seems to be like a prerequisite here yeah and 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 to bring you know at least to you know to bring it back to to china at least my president xi jinping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, has started to say that like they're going to need to really start moving uh, like into a, a more socially equitable direction because like they've yeah they've, this nine nine six thing has just been uh, deemed like illegal by yeah. the Supreme Court in China like I think a couple of months ago like mm. I mean that's one of the nice things maybe uh, it was a reaction to the Tong Ping post could be you never know um, actually I think it was a lawsuit somebody died oh uh, shit um. And, I, I, you know, I do want people to take care of themselves. I don't want it to sound like I don't want no, that. No, of course not. Um, I, I think you've made that clear. But I just, like, I think that we are, you know, True and On did an episode about this a while ago. And I remember really bristling when I heard it. Um, I had, like, a very knee-jerk reaction to it to be like, no, fuck that. But, but and it was with Jody Dean. Oh, um, yeah. And, like, the episode. further I get from that episode the more i agree with it which is that like we're creating a culture on the left where like work is evil and like we should never work and we should build a society where nobody works and like one that's not realistic there's always going to be work to do of course to like keep ourselves alive yeah um and two it's just like meaningful work is really important yes uh not meaningful work is really important yes um, digging ditches and taking care of the trash is all yes. really important. And yes. I doubt you're going to find self-actualization there. Well, um, but it, mm-hmm. like we, we have to, like, I, I don't know. I just, I, I worry about this like culture that we're creating around leftist activism that so much of it is just about avoid. Like so yeah. much of it is about all the things that you shouldn't make yourself do. And I think that that's, you know, and I say this again, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I say this as a profoundly lazy person. (laughs) I am a profoundly lazy person. This is a dialectic. I am an object at rest. I am definitionally (laughs) Newtonianly. I am an object at rest. You got so much friction. So much much work to force myself to do anything. Yeah. Um, It's true. I've seen it. And yet... I, it, the most meaningful stuff that I ever do, the stuff that gives me the greatest joy in my life is, in fact, like, shit that I didn't really feel like doing until yeah. I did it, and then I looked at it, and it was good, and, you know, I just, I, I think that these ideas that we can, like, save the ecology, whatever that means, by, like, not working or through, I think that degrowth is important, too, but, yeah. like, when you turn your entire politics into the art of not doing something... <laughs> I am very skeptical of that because there is a, I look around and all I see is shit that needs to be done. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And one of the the things that I fantasize about is saving up enough money that I could comfortably stop trying to work for the purpose of accumulating more money and use my savings to do the work that's direly needed by the society that I find myself in and care about, um, but will not return a profit. 
like. And that I think the project of figuring out how we can put billions of us toward meaningful work to save civilization from its own like dooming causal factors is incredibly important. And I recently listened to an uh, interview with Kim Stanley Robinson, um, a sci-fi author of uh, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they have a book, 2312, about New York City um, that I really want to read, but I haven't read yet. And, um, you know, Kim was, you know, trying to stress that, like, as far as he could see, the path out of this is figuring out how to use our economic and governmental structures to put into action a work plan for a large portion of humanity to save civilization and a conscious effort and knowledge about what is needed to be done and doing it for that explicit type of purpose would give so many people meaning in their lives, as well as figuring out how to compensate them for that work in a way that fulfills their needs, and that that could be the how as to where we get to my Calvinistic determinist position that we will have a society of all for all that is ecologically rational. And that, like, I don't know. Um, I, 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 think it, I think it could happen. I think it could happen. I think that the Tong Ping and uh, like various other like slacktivist type of um, things are a reaction to the fact that we don't have that meaningful path through work to salvation for our species and our you know third nature the you know the, our, our ecosystem. Yeah, and that we we can and should get there. Sometimes I wonder if there's like a feeling that I've never experienced that is something akin to like being proud of a full work day yeah <laughs> you know like or, or don't I, you get that in the garden i don't well that's what uh, that's why I, like i what i'm saying is that, like i don't know if there is i i sometimes feel like there is a feeling that i've never experienced before okay, so okay. by definition i don't i don't think so okay fair enough. right that that uh um that there's like something because and it wouldn't come from the garden because i i feel like it has something to do with a feeling of like place in society and like doing stuff for mm. others in a way that wasn't um, of my own kind of like moral decision. It was like a duty mm -hmm. and like a duty to do something that was like maybe even unpleasant, but in the end, connected to something, you know yeah, what I mean? When I worked hospitality, I used to feel that way all the time. I used to have very rewarding shifts. Hell yeah. Where like it was so hard and I was so fucking busy and I made a shit ton of money. And at the end of the night, I was able to just like sit down and be like, damn, that was a solid shifts work or yeah. double. Often it would be, often it would be the most exploitative, worst shifts that I would feel amazing at the end of. And was, was it work because you shift, made people hour. happy that um, you had that that social? It was because I did a good job. Okay, it was because I had a difficult job and I did it well, and that was very satisfying. Yeah, does yeah. that fit into um, what you were saying, or is yeah. that missing element it, it, of like I think the, the social? I think the only missing element, yeah, is that um, instead of like making a bunch of money, it would be like the world is better now. Well, it's not. It wasn't the money that made me feel yeah. happy, though. Right. 
Well, I'm, sa- I'm saying that that's the, the one part I would replace. Now? That yeah. would be the one part I would replace. Yeah, I don't yeah. know about any of that. Yeah, I, I get a little ever... bit of that, honestly, just to be, you know, personal. Is like I'm working at a capitalist, profit-seeking corporation that is doing something, but in the pursuit of it doing this thing, whether it was styrofoam or now factory farmed bacon, we're trying to outcompete and displace something that was in my ethics more fucked up. And I felt that element of like, this is, I'm, it's better than having blown my brains out. You know, <laughs> You've like never uh, felt that way with students, David. I, I, I find massive, uh, um, Oh boy! I don't know. I, I don't. I, I'm going to re- reset. Yeah, that reset. Sentence. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> leave that in. <laughs> I I I do feel a lot of pride in my work when I work with students, especially when students are having a really hard time, and my and and that and like getting them through that, and like feeling that like a bunch of young people know something today that they didn't know yesterday. Yeah, that all feels really good. I don't know. It feels like there's something, though, that um, attached to a larger, significant project. Yeah. That there is a vision there. Because at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of the time my best work is done in spite of Mm. the way that my uh, job description is written up. Mm. Right. right? Or like, or I feel like I've done the most good when I've ignored something that May, I should have like given someone an F or something, but it's like, uh, you know, like everyone around me died and I feel tired and I went to my third job and then I came home and couldn't finish the essay. You know, I obviously no one's ever said that to me, but iterations of that. Yeah. It's like yeah. iterations on that where we're like, I, it's probably, uh, yeah. Like, I think I can say this without divulging anything. Yeah. No, this is fine. Um, like I had a student that I had to give basically, uh, 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 I, she was she was failing the class, right? This student was failing the class, and I, I get on Zoom and I talk I talk through her, and she's just like, I I just like I can't get out of my bed to do anything, yeah, and it sucks. And so I, I was just like, hold on one second, and I went into the this was over Zoom at my house, and so like I go into the bathroom and I grab my antidepressants and I just show her the bottle and I'm like, me too, man, like <laughs> me fucking too, you know, and like and it it sucks and it and I'm not asking you to like get out of bed and fucking write the essay anyway. I'm saying, and I'm not even saying that it gets better because. I can't say that it does, right? What I am saying is that, but what I did tell her was that, you know, uh, um, eventually you figure out a way to get through it and, like, it's not a failure. It's just a, something that you have to deal with uh, and no one, and very few, like, institutions that you're going to deal with are really going to help you with it. Yeah. And I'm not saying buck up. I'm saying that, like, this you know, I hear it like this is going to be the reality and it sucks. But look at but like, ostensibly, I am in a good position and I got here anyway. And I have a pill bottle full of, uh, you know, uh, uh, citalopram, you know, and like, so like, like that felt great. Uh, I wasn't delivering good news. I wasn't inspirational. <laughs> you know, like it was but you're being was, real, but I was being real and it was care. Right. And it wasn't like, it's okay that you didn't do anything today because I didn't tell her that. I'm proud of you for, for being on the zoom call. Yeah. No, no. It was like, no, like you, like 
you should have turned in that essay. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know but, the bar isn't getting lower. Yeah, but yeah. you know, like, but I, I understand. A lot of people aren't going to be understanding, and, but like, also, you know, feel some sort of relief that, like, it, it you're not completely written off as like not usable in this society but you are gonna have to do some work to figure out how to how to do that how you to, know? yeah how to take yeah. care of your obligations yeah and, yeah and, and achieve your goals yeah. yeah and i i don't know that she she at least seemed very uh grateful for that but at no point was i saying like just tune out take a bubble bath yeah take a bubble Tom bath or whatever. yeah yeah uh, lay, lay down or and i wasn't uh, she's already doing that and it's not helping yeah so. yeah well and that's the other thing is that a lot of depression uh clinical or otherwise is lying down and being like this sucks yeah <laughs> you yeah. know so like uh, and the worst yeah. advice that you get is almost always true like every time somebody tells me I need to exercise i want to fucking rock kick them <laughs> in the nuts i want you to just like i want i hope that you eat like uh, a bad burrito uh I feel targeted. <laughs> the, the fact is that I do, when I'm very depressed, feel a lot better after taking a walk yeah. um, or doing a little bit of light exercise or whatever I'm capable of doing. Yeah. The problem is that we've just developed a culture where, like, that's all we say to people. Yeah, like, yeah. that's all we say. Yeah. It's like, oh, your depression could be... Like, there's middle yeah. ground here yeah. between, like, you're valid for laying in bed all day yeah. and your mental illness isn't real, you just need to run. Like, yeah. there's a, a place <laughs> in between those two things yeah. that I think we would it would be a lot more helpful for the vast majority of the people who are struggling and suffering is if we didn't just have this all or nothing, you're a worthless little worm unless you rise and grind or you're a perfect little like flower petal and you just, you know, lay in bed and, and, and binge the, you know, real housewives of New Jersey. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. And you can spend the rest of your life doing that. And that's the synthesis that, and this is, this is the, the true historical dialect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's between, the Real Housewives, and getting up early to go to work. <laughs> so, I am extremely grateful for this conversation that it's I've been, ha- had it, with the two of you. It's been a roller coaster. This ride. has been a different episode, I have yeah. to say, yeah. but I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and I hope everybody that's listening uh, has also uh, enjoyed it. If you're listening all the way, you probably did. Uh, to the end of this. And if you don't like anything that we said in this episode, by Too all means, bad. go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't at me. Um, Tan Ping. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys can always write to us and yeah. tell us what you think, but just don't be like mean about it or anything. Yeah, I don't yeah. like that. I, I've had enough people be mean to me this week. I don't yeah. need any more. Um, while, wh- how about for a wildflower, Chris, just tell us a little bit about the vacation you're getting ready to oh, go fuck on. Oh, yeah. All right. So I want to just start this with a challenge that i set up for myself is there a challenge this. coin Can there's we... no challenge coin but okay. I, it did manifest itself then. physically um so me and my wife we got married uh on october 10th 2020 uh after having to punch it a couple times because of covid we ended up getting like a micro wedding of like 18 people including the officiant and photographer um and uh it, it was really beautiful and nice but we also wanted to take a honeymoon and we actually had you know we were lucky enough to have family members who gifted us money for that purpose but because covid and everything else we didn't really have the opportunity that year to go and uh, earlier in the spring, uh, we were like, oh, everyone's vaccinated. Everything's go. We're doing body shots. So we went ahead and 
scheduled and organized a one-year anniversary of our wedding uh, to be our honeymoon Mm -hmm. and also the first vacation we've taken in like a bunch of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I'm really excited to to, uh, go out to California. What we're going to do is we're going to rent a motorcycle and we're going to land in in San Francisco and visit some uh, uh, family and friends there and then travel down the West Coast Highway to San Diego over the course of about 14 days. Mm-hmm. And the motorcycle that we rented, we can just drop off in San, from San Diego and then fly out. It's really convenient. But what was not convenient about it is that it doesn't have a backrest. And when I oh. had my first motorcycle, I got this really nice, like expensive outdoor, like touring bag that has all these compartments and expands. And it would allow us a check luggage, like pack of all the stuff that we want to bring on our trip you know sun tan lotion you know uh clothes uh medicine like inhaler chargers all that kind of shit and have all of that in one location and then on the sides of the bike there were existing like panniers that would open up and allow us to store stuff but the bike that we uh the bag i have needs a backrest mm-hmm. to mount it like goes around it and it needs something to like strap Straps into it in, yeah. mm-hmm. and so I went ahead and tried to in design and build a universal uh, back plate, luggage plate adapter and an adjustable angle and adjustable position back rest with slots for putting the... Um, yeah, of course you did all these things, yeah. Chris. Yeah. And I did this with a CNC mill, which I was able to like, you know, uh, bust out in about a day. And so I, you know, being me, left it to the very last minute. But Friday afternoon, um, I worked with my wife in the machine shop and basically like banged the thing out and it fucking works and it's fucking awesome. And so my anxiety about being able to have like all the stuff we need and be able to take it on the motorcycle and take it up and down California coast has now been abated. Yeah. So I feel like really relaxed. And right now, um, after we finish recording and go pack some stuff and then head out tomorrow morning and it's going to be really fun. Very excited for you guys. I was supposed to make a monitor stand for Brittany, but I fucked up making a 45 degree angle cut. Um, I've done that. There's solidarity (laughs) in the struggle, man. I've (laughs) fucked up so many 45 degree angle cuts. Uh, That's why I'm using robots. Yeah, fine, yeah, yes, yes. I, soon I'll find out what a CNC machine is. Yo, if you have any projects, specifically <laughs> okay. you guys, not any yeah. listeners, because yeah, uh, no, none yeah, of you. It's too much. This, I can't. this is the VIP lounge. Right I now. I have limits. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no. If either of you guys uh, have something that you want to uh, get a uh, hand in helping to design or build, okay. um, CNC machining is like god mode for DIYers. It is insane what you can do with these machines. And this one's like a single axis, like, um, you know, 3D, but like non-turning. And it was just crazy. I was able to like design this thing, put it in CAD, and then just make it all in the scope of like three hours. And I feel like I can help people. I have gained capacity. But not you, listener. Yeah, not no, you guys. Not no, you. No. Just us. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Just like email no, me. No, if, no, you, no, if you know my email, no, we're send close. Us, send us an email. <laughs> Send us an email. I don't. All right. So, yeah. uh, thank you so much for listening to this uh, wide, widely varying episode of the Ironweeds podcast. We certainly hope that you enjoyed it. And congratulations to Chris and Emma on a well deserved vacation. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you. David. I'm going to force you to take me on vacation sometime soon. Absolutely. Not. We haven't been on vacation in like four years. <laughs> that is emotional labor. Do it. <laughs> do it. I don't do want it. to make you do, do any it. emotional labor. Uh, Tongue that means, thing. Yeah, lying down for sure. Um, 
And yeah, so if you want to keep up with Chris's travels, too fucking bad because he's not on social media. Yeah. But you can follow us on social media on Twitter. Yeah, Iron Weeds Pod. And Instagram. Iron Weeds Pod. And you can send us an email about nice things only or some mean things would be nice about them at Iron Weeds Pod. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Peace. You guys are so silly. Oh, another banger for the ages. Tova 躺平歌也歌不大躺平真是妙花被一时爽躺平皆能有环保